What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And just a reminder, before we start, if you enjoy our contents, if you'd like to hear what we talk about in our our bonus monthly episodes, if you'd like to read some of my own or Drew McCaffrey's original fiction pieces, including a particularly juicy Halloween piece of mine that's going to be coming up at the end of October here, if you'd like the opportunity to give us books to read and critique here on the actual episodes themselves, consider visiting our Patreon page at Inking Out Loud. Or if one-time donations are more your style, we've recently opened up a page on Coffee. that's K-O-F-I. Again, we are inking out loud there. So up for discussion today is book nine of The Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. We are on White Knight. Drew, kindly recap this book for us. Yeah. White Knight starts with Harry and those around him dealing with the fallout from proven guilty. Murphy has been disciplined and busted down to Sergeant, losing her command of SI. Molly, meanwhile, is struggling as Harry's new apprentice, and Harry himself is dealing with the aftermath of a Red Court attack on a warden training site. Things move fast as Murphy brings Harry to investigate an apparent suicide. Harry quickly realizes that she was murdered and that she was a practitioner. He tracks down leads, realizing that a serial killer is on the loose and is targeting a group of witches called the Order of the Cauldron. The witches have hired his ex-lover Elaine to help them, and Harry finds out they suspect him of the murders because a man in a gray cloak was spotted with many of the victims. Harry protects the witches from a firebomb and chases Grey Cloak, eventually tracking him via Little Chicago. He discovers that the man is working for Cowell, who survived the events of Deadbeat, and barely survives Cowell's attack when Harry's discovered. With the help of Elaine, Harry tracks down Thomas, who was also seen with several women who disappeared. They find out that Thomas has been taking them to safety, but they get attacked by Madrigal Wraith and a group of tro- a troop of ghouls. From there, Harry gets Marconi involved and calls in Ramirez for backup. Harry and Ramirez head to the Wraith estate to challenge Grey Cloak, actually the vampire Vittori Malvora, and Madrigal to a duel. Harry kills Madrigal, but Vito calls on Cowell to help. Cowell opens a portal to the Never Never and sends an army of super ghouls to attack the entire White Court. Harry responds with his own reinforcements, in the form of Murphy, Marconi, and a squad of his hired guns. A pitched battle ensues, with Murphy, Thomas, Justine, and the rest escaping. But Larry, Lara and Harry are stranded, and are struck by Vito's emotion curse. Lash, newly developed of free will, helps Harry break free. And, using a kiss from Lara to power his spell, Harry saves them from the C4 that Marconi's men planted in the cavern. Harry and Lara come to a truce, and Harry discovers that Lash is gone from his head. He endeavors to turn over the blackened Daenerys from under his basement, and solves one more mystery at the end. Thomas, all along, has started a hair salon and spa. Ah, okay. Sorry, I'm a little out of breath. I just realized I had forgotten my beer. So, I ran back upstairs to go get it, and, uh... Now I'm here. I'm ready. I'm rearing to go. I want to start off by uh, saying I'm still enjoying these books. Not surprised that I am, though. They are getting notably better with each volume. Um, And it's great. Having a series improve with each volume over a series of so many volumes. I mean, the math is just works. Butcher is getting tighter with his plot. He's getting more exciting with his climaxes to me, you know, in my opinion. And this, you know, it's still keeping this sort of the signature cynical flippant tone of Harry Dresden. It's still the same, 
as again, in my opinion, it should be. So this is a solid book. I'm, I'm going to rate this one right out of the gate this week. This is a 9 out of 10 from me. How'd you find wow. it? Okay. So I thought this one was a little bit of a step down from Proven Guilty uh, and Deadbeat. I think it was still good. It's still one of the better uh, books in the series. Uh, but I didn't think it was quite as good as the last couple. Uh, I thought it was... It was a little messy. Um, like there are a lot of moving pieces and, and I kind of got the feeling from Butcher that he was sort of scrambling to keep them all together in this book. Okay. Um, but it, but it wasn't bad. I mean, it, it worked. It wasn't a failure. It's not like he lost control, but it, it was just a, a little less tight of a narrative, I thought, than than uh, Deadbeat or Proven Guilty. Um, okay. The other thing that I, I noticed, uh, which surprised me, because I haven't noticed this in any of the previous eight books, is that uh, it's like he forgot how to use a semicolon. Uh, there are tons of comma splices all over this book where, like, or, or, or improper use of commas. Like, he would have a list and... And uh, a modifier to one of the items in the list. So you'd right. have like, a, so, and there's a comma in that. So he should have been using semicolons to separate the items in the list with a comma, you know, adding description to items. Within uh -huh. it. But he just used all commas. So the lists are like, wait a second, what? Like, you know. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. It was really weird. Like. Like, where did this come from? I wouldn't have noticed because once again, I'm, I'm, I'm back to work as of recently and I've been, you know, for the past couple of books listening to audio again. So this is not something I would have picked up on. In fact, mm -hmm. I have quite a few quotes to get out of the way here. A few passages that I really loved in this book that I'm going to be reading during my favorite scenes, during miscellaneous. And there are a couple that are, that are lengthy. And I was here at the computer listening to those parts that I had written down for the timestamps and going, is that a comma? Is that a semicolon? How many commas are in this sentence? Like there are, you're right. There are, there are some pretty lengthy sentences that do have several pause breaks in them. And so I wouldn't have known if he was using semicolon or colon, but it was already in my mind because I was, I mean, I was just trying to transcribe these just less than an hour ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I noticed uh, that was jarring in this book was he reverted to the, the uh, like retread info dumps. Okay, where it's like I have for the yeah. for the fiftieth time we we heard that Marconi has eyes the color of faded dollar bills, yep. and that yeah. Mac looks like he's anywhere between thirty and fifty with a shaved head, and like you know there, yeah, and, and that you know there are thirteen tables and thirteen pillars in, in Mac's place, and, and and we eventually get to a point where some female, some woman in you know is hurt, is preyed upon, and then we get this explanation that usually starts with something along the lines of. There are a few things that really get on my nerves. And then we always have to hear about how he understands it's irrational, yeah. but I just really can't stand it when bad things happen to women, women in particular. It's like, yeah, I've heard this explanation so many times now. I'm, I, <laughs> yeah. Come on, Butcher. I'm nine books in. I've stuck through this way. I, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. And it was weird because I felt like in Proven Guilty, that kind of went away. Like we didn't, he, he didn't have to spend the time describing Harry's apartment again or you know, or, or whatever. Uh, See, I don't know. I didn't notice because... Guilty, but in this one, it was all over the place. I wouldn't be able to tell you if I've heard it seven, eight, or nine times at this point, because after three or four, it does start to blend together, yeah. 
So, so yeah, like the, but those are those are really my only kind of criticisms of the book. I think it's still a solid. Like I'd probably give this like a six point five or a seven out of ten. Really? Wow, I'm still giving that. I, I mean, I still, I, yeah, I think I did love this book. Yeah, um, but there are still a couple things that I that I feel like Butcher is is, is using or is using as a crutch, and this is your chance to to prove me to correct me here because I very well feel like I could be uh, just not remembering something correctly. Uh, but we're nine books into the series now. Have we heard before? Harry and Butters in the morgue at the beginning of this book. Have we heard before that that object reading is possible? Because if we have, I have no recollection of that. Because we just learned that now. Um, I think we have. I don't okay. remember where, but I remember reading that scene and not being surprised by it. Okay, because I've, I, again, started that one off by saying I could totally be wrong. I could just be not remembering that correctly. Um, but there was another point, even during the end, where, where Lass yells shadow, and she, she sacrificed herself, for lack of a better term, and um, she managed to focus that spell's damage so that it only fo- hits the parts of Harry's brain that contained her or, or something along those lines. These are the kinds of things that come across to me as just sort of hand-wavy, particularly when they follow the end of a climax like that, and they're presented as the explanation that's supposed to wrap things up for now. So I, I guess I lied. I actually do have a couple more criticisms. Oh, yeah? Uh, okay. But, I did mean to... that. Okay. That is one of them, and this is, this is kind of nitpicky. Or was it picky until the end when it became like a pretty important plot point with Lash? The whole thing that like we only use ten percent of our brains—that oh is my a god! Myth. Like that is not true. Ugh, I wasn't gonna. I've done so much bitching about science that I I was just gonna let that one go this week. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I definitely saw that one. I heard that one. I should say. Yeah, the ten percent like, of our brains—that was a face slap moment. Like oh. I was, I was willing enough to to like write that off, but then when it became like, oh, she's like, she pitched, you know, a tent in the part of your brain that you're not using. I was like, that's not how it works. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's not how human brains work. That's an urban legend. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, actually, so I, I'm, I was just scrolling through my notes again here, and I. Uh, Maybe and you reminded me when you brought up the object reading scene. Mm. Yeah. Maybe uh, that's how magic works. In there this was <laughs> a, a reversion in this book to a lot of the like creepy sex stuff. Okay. Um, like there yeah. were some scenes with like, like objectifying Molly that were kind of uncomfortable. Um, like having, I mean, it was plot relevant, but having Molly just like straight up have an orgasm when she reads the corpse of of Jessica Blanche was just like, oh, okay. Know? And so... then like both Bob and Ramirez are making like super dirty remarks about her. I'm like, isn't she still underage? No, like, she's like 19 now, right? I thought she was 17. She was 17 yeah. two years ago. Two in, years ago in book eight, right? Oh, wait, no, this is book nine. Yeah. Oh my god, it was just last book. Yeah, so maybe I mean, she's eighteen, but like still, that it, it it's a little just, uncomfortable. But I, yeah. I mean, I came out of that right away, and I was like, oh, okay. I was immediately just made more uncomfortable by the fact that this woman apparently died of an orgasm. That's how I took that. I was a little more confused about that than I was about Butcher presenting it through Molly. There, I, I didn't really, yeah, it didn't really stand out to me. Yeah, there but, were. I mean, I'm still gonna be talking about um, Molly, and I'm gonna be talking about Molly in context with Ramirez later. But uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll have lots of lots of stuff to talk about Molly in, in the character oh, portion. I just realized another thing that's been, <laughs> I started off by saying this is a nine out of ten and I think I love this book and here I am still bitching about it. There's one more thing I just realized that 
it seems like Butcher's relying on, and I'm just I'm kind of over it by now. It's a stylistic thing, and it works, and it it works great. I just I'm over it by now, and that is the point where going into a final climax, Harry has an idea, and he sends somebody away with a secret message, or he sends somebody away with a clue, mm. and then it doesn't. We're, we're we don't know what it is. He thinks about something, he solves a mystery or something, but we don't learn what it is. He tells somebody else. In this yeah. case, he tells Murphy. She goes. What is it? And he goes, I told her. And that's all we learn. And then she comes back later with Marconi. And it's like, oh, okay, that's what it did. It's just, it worked the first time. It kind of, the second time I was like, oh, okay. But, and I love this, this sort of plot device. But after five or six times, I'm like, okay, it's, it's no longer landing for me. And I'm just sort of getting frustrated as soon as I hear something like, sure. I told her. And then he just goes on with the rest of the scene. And it's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of one of those things, uh, you know, like, uh, Matthew Stover mentioned on our Lies of Locke Lamora episode where it's like at a certain point when you're analyzing books like this and when you are writing your own books and you you start to see the gears and understand like the construction of the book it's hard to not notice that and yeah. just enjoy the story and yeah, this yeah. is one of those things like this is one of the gears that Butcher really really likes to use in his when he's building his stories one of those moving parts is the the kind of delayed reveal the artificially limited narrator yeah, um, I, I, I'm no, I'm not a particularly astute person. If I wasn't reading this for specifically for a discussion, a 1 to 2 hour discussion on a podcast like this, I I, I might not have even noticed it, you know. If we hadn't started this podcast, I should say, you know, I'd, I mean, yeah. we, we talked about uh, not this particular uh, plot device, but similar things on uh, some of our Brandon Sanderson books, you know, uh -huh. where in 2020, basically the for the last seven months of 2020, all we read was Cosmere and it, it became very months. clear doing thorough critical readings of Mistborn and Stormlight, especially what sort of structures and, and plot devices and narrative devices Brandon Sanderson really likes to use. Uh -huh. And that's why, you know, it, it has become a lot easier for readers like us who are very, very familiar with Sanderson's work to start predicting some of those twists and turns that maybe we weren't picking up on when we first started reading his stuff with, yeah, you know, uh, the Final Empire or Elantris or something like that. Yeah. Um, while we're still in in style, I really wanted to talk about how we're still exploring this this darker part of Harry a little more. Like these these, these glimpses that we've had up until now, becoming a little more center stage. This uh, this flashback sequence in particular, New England. You know, if we heard it, like we heard it referenced ominously so many times, and we got there and it got dark, and then it got even darker it, it started to dip its toe in the in acts of cane or gap cycle territory in my opinion when harry takes the time to torture the ghouls and 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 to think of the torture that those two poor kids went through it's just it's 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 so screwed up on so many levels and i was i mean i was not expecting this kind of content when starting the series off like even or or during or after the first couple of books i wasn't quite prepared for this Um, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't say it's as dark as Kane or Gap, but I mean, uh, it did get dark. Girl uh, was partially eaten alive by ghouls. I mean, I think like the, her, 
breasted and like chewed off alive and her brother was there like yeah to yeah hear it. like that's that's yeah, that was, i, I that's say that's pain or gap cycle territory there that's like oh um, my god i i thought it was appropriate though i mean one of the driving sure, themes yeah. in this book or uh yeah i guess one of the driving themes is the control of emotions and the control of appetites and uh especially you know with lash's character development and the way her relationship with harry developed throughout this book and and how he was finally becoming aware or being made aware by other people of the effect this bond was having on his temper and and it's like okay well you know it, it makes sense to drive home that point with a little bit more of a raw um gruesome oh yeah scene you know or it's like this is this is emblematic of kind of harry's the the depths that harry has reached as a result of lashiel's uh subtle influence on his mind yeah yeah i mean i would agree it's appropriate too especially after the lead-up that we had it's not something that he just sprung up this the sequence wasn't something that was just completely out of left field we had heard new england well, referenced again and again so uh I, I it was kind of out of left field like i don't think we've ever had this well, just super random flashback the fact like that it was like in the before. middle of like a big fight yeah. kind of thing that was that that was kind of random but i mean like the uh <laughs> the level of graph the, the level of darkness to which it went didn't surprise me because I had been hearing it brought up again and again, but you're right. Mm -hmm. It's specifically where it happened, how it was like as Harry, I think he was like in the water and he still wasn't safe. And it was there was right still... after Madrigal like opened yeah. fire on him with Attacked an assault the boat, rifle. Right? Yeah. And, and he like the, the ice cracks and he goes into the water and then yeah. it switches to this flashback for like, right. The flashback in the middle of the pages. Fight. And I was like, what? what? <laughs> Which normally I would say that doesn't work. Don't, don't do that. But didn't bother me. It was it was okay. I don't think it succeeded, but I also don't think it failed. <laughs> that makes <laughs> yeah. sense. Uh see, are we done my style points? Yep, yeah, we are done my style points. Anything else style oriented you want to discuss before we jump into Harry Dresden as a character? Um no, I think I think I'm ready for character discussion here. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we've already talked about Harry eight times now, so uh I did mention during the during my intro that like um, part of what I like about this series is Harry's character remaining the same. So obviously I'm not going to have a ton to talk about with Harry today. I will say two things. Well, number one, um, and we just kind of finished talking about this, but um, I like that we're still exploring more of his darker nature. And I, I hate seeing what Butcher has to do to him, but I it, it makes sense. And I see why he has to do it to him. Because there's really only one way to torture a character with the morals of Harry Dresden. And that's not to hurt him, but to hurt those around him. That flashback to New England that we were just talking about. That's everything emblematic right there. Um, and I will be talking about that scene again later. But uh, the second thing I want to say about Harry, um, I do like... And I imagine a lot of us do shamelessly like this, that hand in hand with Harry's increasing uh, experience and his knowledge and his power, his practice more specifically with Molly, his increasing magnitude of badass, both in practice and in reputation. There's that scene where he just gets really pissed, like really pissed off. I want to say it was immediately following the soul gaze with, with Helen Beckett, where he just yeah. 
loses his temper and he completely just blasts apart concrete destroys the windows molten rock flying everywhere like that is not something i would have thought was within harry's capabilities in book one in stormfront or book two at least maybe not with a bunch of preparation he would have had to like prepare the site first or something here he's just angry he does it on the spur of the moment just in a moment of like just explosive temper like damn it's awesome but it's also terrifying yeah, sure. So I'll I'll leave Harry for now. I'll let you jump on yeah, that or yeah, yeah. So um, like I said, I I appreciated the thematic backbone of Harry's arc in this book, where where it's all about self control and emotion, and how it's reflected in his relationship with Molly, where he's kind of trying to drive home this idea of of self control and self understanding. Uh, in Molly's training when he himself is struggling with that and doesn't realize it. And it takes those around him to, you know, make him wise to that. And then, and then that all kind of comes to a head in the conversation he has with Lash where she's talking about herself, but through the metaphor of Molly and then has to explicitly say, you know, we're, we're talking about Molly here, not me. And he's like, oh yeah, sure. You know? And, and so there's, there was just a lot of good, like mirroring and foiling of characters and relationships around Harry in this book. So I liked Mm. that a lot. Uh, Like it's one of the biggest improvements in the series for me, just in, in general, the amount of work being done on Harry's character. Whereas, in the first few books, I thought he was extraordinarily bland and very static. And, uh, and now that's not the case anymore. He's, he's absolutely a dynamic character. He's, he's much more interesting to me now. Uh, we also got more information about his, his background where he was apparently like conceived on purpose at the right time. Like I actually forgot about that. I yeah. totally forgot to mention that in my notes. Um, like there's there's something, some like heavy hitter, you know, lore going on in the background of why Harry exists. Yeah, I should I should, I should elaborate on something I said because you're right. Harry is changing in the in in a lot of the ways that we would want to see him change over the course of the series. When you're talking about a dozen books, even two dozen books, you know, in the in the long run, um, or separate stories. But what, mm-hmm. what I should have said is that Harry is remaining static in the ways that I like, in the things that I like about him, most notably his cynical, sort of self-deprecating humor. In, in the reasons that I have to like Harry Dresden, those are remaining the same. If, if anything, they're actually kind of expanding. They're, they're deepening. But at their heart, he's still, he's still Harry Dresden. He's still somebody who hurts the most when others are hurt. And that's, that, that's what I like about him. And that seems to remain constant. Yeah, that that sounds right. Um, yeah, I'm worried though. I'm a little worried because there was a moment where he, there was a, this psychic attack on Elaine, and Harry reaches out to Elaine, and he says his name out loud. Harry, this is Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden, and the Scavis Scavis agent heard that. Now, the agent's dead. We don't. Yeah. We, we do know that. I believe. <laughs> I think. I hope we know that. But, I mean. What if someone else could have listened in? What if, I don't know, like, some, like, I'm worried. He has just 
kind of floated that name out there once more, and that's very, very dangerous uh, for I'm, someone. I'm not like worried. Uh, not worried. I think I think the only the only worry is still, as far as his name goes, is still that gun on the mantle of Chauncey, who has three of his four names. Yeah, who has who just needs one more. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like he, there's just one more name that needs to be figured out, and then the pieces are all out there. And when he does things like this, I get a little worried. Yeah, and honestly, so I I kind of thought back to Chauncey in this book because we we learn that the the one who walks behind is actually an outside power. Oh yeah, the outsiders. A, not just another demon. And it almost made me wonder if Chauncey is also another outside power and they know that Harry has this potential power over them, so they're trying to get his name. Oh my god. You may have just blown my mind. I mean, I, I have no idea. Obviously, I, I mean, we haven't even seen Chauncey since book three, right? Book yeah. two? Book two. John Zagaroth. He was in Full Moon. Th- who, did, yeah. who did we talk about him with? That would that would solve the question. Craig. Craig Hanks. Craig, so it'd be book yeah. two then. Yeah, yeah it was okay. book two. Yeah, so... <laughs> I don't know. We'll 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 see. I mean, I we'll have to see. I'm dead certain Chauncey's going to come back. Like, there's no way. Oh that, yeah, that Butcher's not going to do that. But. Yeah, no. Um, my 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 last point about Harry is just I wanted to explain my favorite Harry moment. And I know we have our favorite moments in the book, our favorite scenes planned for later. I just want to give this one point. My favorite Harry Dresden moment. All right. Oh. No, no, I'm not gonna. No, no, I'm not doing that yet. No, nope, no, nope. I still may want to save it for my favorite scenes. Sorry, I know I just teased. I, I'll, I'll get back to it later. We can go on if you have nothing else about Harry uh, Murphy, perhaps. Uh, sure, we can move on to Murphy. I don't have a whole lot about her in this. Say, one. I mean, I don't have really anything besides just, just saying what can I say that I haven't said already. I mean, she's firing an assault rifle, literally firing an assault rifle into a wall of ghouls. I mean, that she's perfect. That, <laughs> um, yeah, I Murphy's mean, she character. she's just. She's a good friend to Harry at this point. Uh, I I still think there's you know sexual tension there. I'm, I, I'm not convinced they won't end up together. I feel bad point, that she's but, had special investigations taken away from her, but oh, I yeah. obviously think that she needs that to happen for her to really achieve what she can achieve. Because I still think about every time Harry sees her with his sight, that sort of avenging angel that she is. I think mm-hmm. honestly, Si was holding her down, and so as much as mm. it sucks to see her, you know, have to take that blow to her pride, I. Uh, it's gonna. I. I have no doubts that it's gonna lead to greater things for her. Okay. Okay. Sorry, I'm getting um, chatty again. I'm sitting here with my coffee. I keep cutting let's you talk off. Talk about Thomas. Okay. Thomas. Still <laughs> a huge fan of Thomas. Yeah. Like he just keeps getting better. Uh, I. I'm a little confused. Okay, you have to help me with this. I love that Thomas has found what he that what he needs apparently to socialize, to feed, and to have a successful happy ish without like ish without justine life i just i don't get the logistics here we we learned previously in the last couple of books at least that the reason thomas can't keep a job is because of the whole being an incubus and having female co-workers around to feed on kind of thing and here we're just gonna accept that he's not gonna lose control because why <laughs> precisely how does owning and operating a beauty salon solve that whole incubus problem with female co-workers around in particular so the as i understood it the problem was that he was hungry all the time and that's why he was like drawing female attention to such a dangerous extent and was so close to being to losing control okay, but so now he's, no longer... he's not hungry he's able to safely feed 
and and so he doesn't have to like try to turn down the blast so he's to speak. able to safely feed because of the trust he gets from these women who trust him with their hair yeah he talks about it he says like yeah, uh, because I it's do... not sex but it is intimacy it's a different sort of thing though and he can only like sip he can't really like take bites so to speak so uh, he, it makes it seem like the temptation would be worse. I don't know. How do you? That's like an alcoholic slowly. saying, "I'm mm. going to be fine because I'm just sipping the beer." What are you talking about? I don't know. I'm looking confused. I, I'm not sure that's a, a, I, a good analogy. No, it may not be. <laughs> it very well, might not be. I, this is a very. I, I'm just. I have no. I mean, I, it, I and it's because I, I think it also gets a little bit of an explanation from Bob uh, in a roundabout way, where Bob talks about how. People lose bits and pieces of their soul all the time, and it regrows. And it's only mm-hmm. a problem when you, like, take a huge chunk, or you take too much, where it's like, all right, that, that's going to make, like, an actual psychic wound, and it's going to take forever to heal. And we see, like, even with Justine, she healed after nearly being killed by Thomas feeding on her. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, and she's just kind of putting on this act <laughs> to okay. infiltrate Lara's okay. court. I can. I'm, but, I'm starting to be able to conceptualize it. It's, but it's so like in in the situation of the hair salon, he's only taking very very small pieces of their soul to feed on, in and just that greater numbers. Quickly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So. Okay. All right. All right. It's starting to make a little more sense. I w- that was just left a little open for me, but. Again, I was I was listening to this, and it was in a loud machine shop. There's a few things that I'm probably not. I'm just not picking up on. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, Thomas, though, I mean, Thomas is still a, a bundle of laughs, and I loved the the parts of his and Harry's uh, relationship that have to get explored as uncomfortably as they do in this book. It's just, it's really, really funny. I'll be drawn back to there, my favorite scenes again, too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, so um, um, Molly, you know anything about Molly? You want to say? Yes. Still love Molly. She's yeah, she's cool. Yeah. Uh, basically, as soon as we started getting her as an adult or an adult adjacent character. Uh, I, I liked her potential a lot and I have really enjoyed the way butcher has developed her relationship with Harry since that time that he like chatted with her in the treehouse. There's still very much that like father daughter kind of vibe going on. Yeah. That she, yeah. she needs this firm guiding hand to to learn how to comport herself in the adult world um and 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 as i said earlier she helps harry grow too she helps harry come to a little bit more of like a a self-realization self-actualization as he is helping her to grow and improve herself at the same time so that's just a great relationship as far as i'm concerned yeah, there were there were moments where she was just adorable in this one. Uh, when she's like, "Um, Sergeant, if you don't like," she's talking to Murphy at the beginning. If you don't mind, how could you tell I was there? And she just gets <laughs> floorboards are creaking when no one was standing on them. It was your deodorant. Your tongue stud clicked against your teeth once. I felt some air move a few minutes ago. It didn't feel like a draft. Like there, like there's this. She does fit this sort of um, awkward, fumbling, gangly, I guess, teenager that. Yeah, it's just it's it's a whole bundle of laughs, and she does have a great chemistry with Harry. So I mean, there's nothing about Molly that I have to complain about. There's absolutely yeah, nothing. It, well, well, and that's why I think because especially in this, she's framed in a really adolescent way. Yep, that's why the sexualization of her 
feels icky to me. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Especially because, I mean, yeah, we've no Molly, for, especially Harry's no Molly since she was tiny. Assuming, yeah. you know. Like, I don't um, really have a problem with Ramirez being into her because, like, yeah, sure, he's he's in his early 20s. He's like what twenty three, twenty four. Yeah, he's like young mid twenties. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. I, not I know Harry fun. said like he he made like warden commander before twenty five. So yeah, um, but you know, I do have a problem with 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 Molly Ramirez, but it's not about his age. It's just about the convenience of it. Um, we learned Ramirez is a virgin, okay? And I swear, I spent a solid portion of this book hoping that. Butcher wasn't just going to then shoehorn Molly and Ramirez into a relationship simply on the account of the fact that they're both virgins, or at least this soon after just finding out that they both have that in common. It's like, it would just feel like, oh, you're a virgin? She's a virgin. Say no more. You two are perfect for one another. Like, as far as I can tell, it's the literal only thing they have in common. And then, of course, at the end, we get this little throwaway little detail about Ramirez surviving his wounds, and Harry's thinking about Molly taking his car and having little doubt where she took it, if I remember correctly. Like, I stopped and I was like, come on, we got I mean, I don't one know. battle I don't after know how we find out. I say the only thing they have in common is that they're virgins. Like, obviously, they're both practitioners. Okay, they can both, yeah. Like, Ramirez is a warden. I suppose I don't really consider them in this. You're right, you're right, though. I totally forgot. They both have magical ability. Yeah. Yeah. I do, and they I both will say. look up to Harry. Okay. Yeah. I suppose. For. for vastly different reasoning i suppose yeah i, mean, I don't, ramirez I don't gets think to... ramirez is gonna admit that he looks up to harry but he does oh yeah i think he told harry right away like uh at the end of deadbeat or maybe it was at the beginning oh yeah know. that's true he does he does have a remark there doesn't he he's like well a lot of yeah. us look up to you man but um, yeah i will say this uh, since we're on the, on the subject though of molly and ramirez both having uh their respective levels and abilities of power i love that we didn't we didn't get this whole apprentice has the intimidating mysterious levels of power trope i love that butcher took that different route he made her nimble more than powerful yeah. or anything in that regard that's interesting and i love what that means about harry having an apprentice with that kind of magical dexterity i guess for lack of a better term i do sure. like that he did that but uh yeah as far as by as soon as i learned that ramirez was a virgin i was like oh please like <laughs> if they're gonna end up together, let's let's have like a book or two developing that relationship. But it's just like right away, one battle later, suddenly they're seeing each other, or at least it seems like they're seeing each other. And it's like, oh, it seemed really convenient. I don't know, just inconvenience. It felt a little shoehorned. Hmm. I'll use that word. Yeah, again. I didn't have a problem with it. <laughs> I may be the only one. Yeah, I know you don't like Ramirez anyway, so that may be playing into it. I didn't like him at first. I'm way. I'm really much coming around on, on Ramirez. He had some okay. badass moments in the in the in the battle here at the end when he's yeah, got the he green light and he's just throwing everything around. That was, I do like his attitude. He does remind me far too much of the Lopin for me to really say that. Yeah. He's a great character. <laughs> he's but, so uh, much more toned down though. It's like, just a, you're, it's just me. It's just me. I'm not even good. It's just me. I have another character that I hate and I should not allow it to interfere with my opinion on Ramirez. Ramirez is a bundle of laughs. I have no specific problem with Ramirez. I shouldn't. And I mean, I appreciated the way he dealt with Lara. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Of course. Like I he, mean, he comported himself pretty well there. He did. He made me proud. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, me, Elaine? Anything about Elaine? Um, I don't have a bunch on Elaine. Mostly, I was just kind of surprised at how uncomplicated her character felt in this book. Like... She was so 
um, untrustworthy when she showed up in what summer night. Yeah. And, and it was like, uh, like she was a really complicated character for Harry to have to deal with. And in this book, she was just very straightforward, very honest. Like I didn't Harry, get that. Like gets in her head with the, you know, the telepathy and, and he like sees, you know, kind of all of these, insecurity she has and and how she's legitimately trying to help people and like and i like it was it was probably a good idea of butchers to not make her more complicated because this plot was already complicated enough well like it could have gotten even messier like too many kind of juggling too many balls at the same time uh but at the same time it was a little bit of a letdown because i think her character is less interesting now I wouldn't say I totally agree with the fact that she wasn't. I just felt like she there there wasn't there was complication there, and that we just didn't need to get into it. It felt like she had her own reasons for doing things, and that who knows we could get a short story later or another book from Elaine's point of view explaining a lot of what's happened. Like it didn't feel like that the complication wasn't there. It just felt like we weren't seeing it, and to me, so I didn't really have a huh. any disappointment in it. I feel like we saw right to her core. Like, I, I I felt like her character and her motivations were spelled out right on the page in, yeah. in this well, By the end, with um, with with this little, I shouldn't say little, with this mission of hers, I do like this this idea that she has and enlisting Harry's help, too, with creating this mm-hmm. sort of society that protects uh, the more casual users of magic. I, I do like that she has that to build up for her. That, that alone speaks yeah. everything that I need to know and like about Elaine. Sure. Okay. But yeah. Um I do I think that covers all the characters I want to talk about. Anything else? Any other characters that you want to discuss? Um Don't really have anything on Cowell or Marconi. And yes, we're aware that we're pronouncing it wrong. Yeah, I, I realized that at the end when I said it and I just continued because I didn't yeah, care. Yeah, <laughs> it just Marcone just doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I can't believe the balls on Marcone though, and I know I I mean that as a compliment. Normally, I don't mean it as a compliment here. He's got Helen's daughter, and she doesn't even mm-hmm. know the girl's alive. Yeah, he thinks because he thinks it would shat like shatter her. Like, what's going to shatter her, dumbass? Is knowing that her daughter is finding out that her daughter been alive this whole time, and she's wasted all of these years, all of that time of their remaining time together. That's what's going to shatter her. You prick. <laughs> Uh, what about Lara? Do you have anything about Lara? She's a badass, but she's also kind of frustrating to read in that she's just... I don't know. I like her. I like seeing her fight. I think she's fight. a great character. She and Thomas had that awesome moment together, and they're fighting against the ghouls, and even Marcone was like... Marconi, I'm going to stubbornly stick to it. Marconi was like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> the beautiful nightmare, or something like that. That was, yeah. I mean, that was no, pretty I, cool. I just... I like her back and forths with Harry. I like her just sociability. <laughs> I should feel like a stale character. That's how I'll say that. No, not at all. Like uh, when we first met her, like one of my favorite scenes in, in blood rights was just like Harry having breakfast with her at the end of the book. Yeah. Where I loved their banter. And here again, they're, they're just 
and it's not only that it's fun banter, but it's it's meaningful. It it reveals something about both their characters and it develops the plot and it's fun. Mm. She she's very entertaining to read. I'm never she's she's not one of the characters that appears and I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna just wait until I get to something more interesting. Lara Wraith is someone who dominates the page as much as I imagine she dominates a scene in person. Um she's not one of my favorites. She's not one of my favorites, but she's interesting. She's interesting. Okay. Um hmm, let's see here. Oh, we finally got some answers about Mouse, eh? Elaine recognizes him as a temple dog. Well, we knew he was a temple dog. Did we know that already? We found that we heard the word temple dog before? Yeah, that's what they're called, like, right at the beginning of that book. What? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Chalked that up as another one that Rob somehow managed to miss. Yeah. Um, that was the beginning of the... Blood Rites, right? Uh, yeah, that was the beginning yeah. when the building was on fire and it wasn't his fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love that Thomas chose to name his vessel the Water Beetle. How great is that? Yeah, I, I guess I I didn't. <laughs> you know, you didn't find that particularly thought. entertaining, like I did. No, I giggled. I gig. I giggled. Okay. <laughs> We're still in miscellaneous. I'm, in case we couldn't tell, I'm just rattling off my miscellaneous points. Do you have any others before I continue? No, go ahead. Uh, the blood. The callback to the joke from Blood Rights. I really love that when Ramirez asks uh, asks Harry how he met Lara Wraith, and he explains I was on the set of a porno flick actually. And he's like, what are you there for? What are you on the set of a porno for? He's like, for stunt work. Yeah. <laughs> I did like that. Um, see here. Okay. This is something I forgot to bring up in Proven Guilty. I had I was going through phone notes earlier today. I was deleting old ones from books that I'd written notes for that we've covered already. In Proven Guilty, I forgot to bring this up. Where the hell is Nicodemus? What what is What is Nicodemus up to? I, uh-huh. I think I remember having said like saying I've I'm glad that we have a potential like multi-volume you know maybe even like endgame series villain but book seven book eight book n- now book nine we haven't even heard from him book six too it was book five that he was in so six yeah. seven eight nine we haven't even heard from him what's going on I don't know I I have a feeling he's going to show up again soon now that Lashiel is out of the picture um like narratively speaking. Oh. Butcher didn't need to have Nicodemus show up again because other Denarians were still involved with Harry over this time, where we still had Cassius showing back. True. Up. We, Good point. We, we had this ongoing Lashiel storyline, but now Cassius is dead and Lashiel is gone. So if we're going to have, um, if we're going to maintain this tension, this narrative tension throughout the series, we're going to need Nicodemus to show up again soon. I hmm. I would expect in the next book, uh, we get back to Michael. And we get more about the Denarians. I keep thinking of, of Nicodemus as some sort of leader of the, uh, amongst the, uh, the, Den- well, the Denarians. So, he is, more or less. So, like, I'm just like, I'm seriously, or at least like an agent of his or something. Nicodemus sends his regards or something. He just seems to be like, you're right, though. Lashiel's gone now. Um... Yeah. There's a little more room on, on stage. I don't know. I'm just... It, 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 I wrote this down, these points down, like, at least a week ago. Uh, and uh, at least this one about Nicodemus actually was doing Proven Guilty, so it's at least two weeks ago. I was like, where the hell is this guy? I want to say that I love the world-building details we got with these free-holding lords, I think they're called. Yeah, yeah. 
There's like 20 of them on the planet. Yeah, two mm-hmm. dragons. I have the, the quote here. Two dragons. Dracul, the original, not baby Vlad. The Archive, who I totally forgot about. What is she up to? She grow like right. normal children? Um, the CEO of some company called Monax Securities, some sort of semi-immortal shape-shifting guru in the, U- the Ukraine. There's so much potential here for future books. I love every damn word of that sentence. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Anything else, or should I get my last one out of the way before we go uh, into? Go for it. I don't. I don't think I have any more miscellaneous points to talk about. Cool. Yeah. Um, I made a joke last episode about Dresden learning to play guitar, or maybe it was the episode before that. I think it was the episode before that. Um, mm-hmm. and I said so. I said something in name like, "Oh, we could both suck a guitar now." <laughs> Uh, I was going to comment about Dresden's excellent taste in music with uh, the animals and uh, the police, every breath you take. I decided <laughs> to look that last one up. I was like, I'm going to learn this one. I've never, I love, I always love that song. I forgot it existed. I'm going to look that one up. And it, it turns out that is insanely hard. It is <laughs> way harder than it sounds. And it turns out because of that, Harry Dresden, way better guitar player than I am. And <laughs> it turns out Sting is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> for writing songs that are that sound easy, that are impossible to play. The way you have to stretch your your pointer and your your pinky finger on that is just it's. There's no way to do it. That's funny. So that's really funny. Harry Dresden's a badass in more ways than one. I'm ready yeah. for favorite scenes. Uh, okay, let's do it. How have we been handling um, honorable mentions? I keep forgetting how we've been handling those lately. Did, did go the, we go first on those. Sure. I don't have an honorable mention, but no? if you do, go for it. Harry having to play gay. That that just that comedy gold mine, you know, it was hard not to lisp that quote there. Like the vast majority of my enjoyment out of this was because of the numerous callbacks it gets. There's that particular scene with Murphy and Rollins having fun with talking about like future gifts for Harry, like tickets to musicals, you know. It's I can tell it's been a solid decade or longer since this book was published, because I imagine it would be handled a little differently today, but all yeah, in all, definitely. it's just it's so clearly done with lighthearted con- like intent. I found oh, it yeah. amusing, and it landed yeah. for me. So I had to mention it at least. Uh, okay, yeah. So okay, but now getting into actual top three favorite scenes. My third favorite is this near soliloquy we had. We had I can't even speak. This near soliloquy we had about pain in chapter thirty-one. And yes. I have the quote here: "You hurt, you recover, you move on. Odds are pretty good that you're just going to get hurt again. But each time you learn something." Each time you come out of it a little stronger. At some point, you realize that there are even more flavors of pain than coffee. There's the empty little pain of leaving something behind. Graduating, taking the next step forward, walking out of something familiar and safe into the unknown. There's the big, whirling pain of life upending all of your plans and expectations. There's the sharp little pains of failure. And the more obscure pains of, or I should say, aches of successes that didn't give you what you thought they would. There are the vicious, stabbing pains of hopes being torn up, the sweet little pains of finding others, giving them your love, taking joy in their life as they grow and learn. There's the steady pain of empathy that you shrug off so you can stand beside a wounded friend and help them bear their burdens. And if you're very, very lucky, there are a few blazing hot little pains you feel when you realize that you are standing in a moment of utter perfection. An instant of triumph, or happiness, or mirth, which at the time cannot possibly last. 
and yet will remain with you for life. Beautiful. Yeah. That is, this is my chef's kiss right here. That is absolute poetry. Yeah. So that was also my third favorite. <laughs> I, could, I could almost tell by the way he went, yeah, when I started, when I went right into it, I, I went in my head, I was thinking, damn, did I just take one of his other ones? Good. I was like, your third? Yeah. Awesome. It was, it was very anything good. else you want to say about it? Or should I, should I, just continue I don't know. I don't know if there's anything I have to say about it. Like, is there anything that should be said? Yeah. Like nothing need be just presented as it is. Everybody just heard it. They heard me butcher that with my stuttering over my caffeinated self. But um, <laughs> okay, I guess I'll go into my second favorite then. Eh? Mm-hmm. It's the end of chapter thirty-six with Harry arriving at the White Court Conclave. And I have, again, I have the quote here. It's a lot shorter, obviously. Yeah. I am Harry Dresden, Warden of the White Council of Wizards. Under the Uncelia Accords, I accuse you of murder in a time of peace and challenge you here and now before these witnesses to trial by combat. I slammed my staff down again in another shock of thunder and hellfire flooded the room to the death. <laughs> Utter silence fell on the deeps. Damn. There ain't nothing like a good entrance. Yeah. So oh, yeah. good. It's so good. Would have been even better if, if like in the silence you just heard the little jingle of his spurs. <laughs> I don't know why I went a little bit below the Bible belt with my uh interpretation of that one. That kind of just sprung up. Well he does talk about how he needs to get a cowboy hat and spurs. Oh he did talk about spurs yeah. in this one, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> huh. Maybe that was just like a Freudian thing. I just inserted it there without realizing why I had that predisposed Ah, yeah. that's actually a good point. I totally yeah. forgot that he'd made the, the alliteration a few times himself in this book. Anyway, sorry, what's your second favorite scene, my man? Uh, my second favorite scene was Harry and Lara after the explosion, when they're like picking themselves up in the ruins of Chateau Wraith. Once again, just incredible repartee, a meaningful plot progression, uh, meaningful revelations of what their characters are in this moment of who they are um great witty back and forth i love every time harry and lara get to play off each other you really do don't you yeah i do like i i almost am beginning to to want them to end up like in some sort of like political marriage or something like that, because that would be so much fun. <laughs> oh my God. Could you imagine that? Like that, that's like her terms for peace with the white council is Harry has to marry her or something. Oh like my that. God. We have a whole book of, of Harry trying to figure out how to be married to this woman. Yeah. And to remain sane. That. that would be really entertaining. That sounds, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> um, okay. So, my favorite scene, then. My very favorite yeah. scene. And I apologize for bringing the mood down as I'm about to. But if it if it lines up with your favorite scene, then I guess it was going to happen anyway. Um, The Soul Gaze with Helen Beckett. Yep. That kind of raw human pain just under a microscope. That is soul-destroying stuff. That... And again, it's it's almost traumatic for me to say these words. That owie, 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 on repeat. Oh, that was so bad. Oh. And it's driven even worse. I think specifically today. And oh, die, I, I guess I'll just since I pause there, I'll get it out. Um, 
we we, there, we just got word that um, at my sister's apartment building, I believe it was, there was a toddler that just fell off of one of the balconies there, about oh, the same age. Uh, it's just like, I don't even have words. I don't have words to explain how a scene like this hits. You know, I, I'm not a parent myself, Rob Santos. I am not a parent. I have nieces and nephews. I don't, I don't want to imagine how hard this scene would hit somebody who is a parent. Yeah. I, we had, we had questions answered here in this scene that we wanted, and we had questions answered that we did not want. So, uh, I mean, it's the kind of writing that, that really only comes from an author who understands how the human soul is, is, is constructed and what notes to hit. Cause that was some powerful stuff. And so just on, on a sheer economy of power per word, that one has to be one of the heaviest scenes I've ever read. And definitely the number one for me in this book. Yeah. Yeah. That was also my number one, which probably doesn't come as a surprise to anybody who's been listening to these Dresden episodes. Because it, it seems like every time he does a soul gaze scene, he just knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Um, but this was a, a different sort of soul gaze. So one of the reasons I loved many of the others was the art, art, the artistry of them. Like the, the way he painted an image and did it in an abstract way, whether it was, you know, this this Greek temple that has come under disrepair and, and filth and stains for Denton or uh, the image of Thomas and the dark Thomas in the mirror or the, like the stained glass windows of the possible futures of Molly. There was an artistry to it here. It's not about that like you said, it's just raw emotion. And I especially liked how it flew in direct uh, conflict with what Helen tells Harry before he does it, where she she's like, I'm a functional borderline psychopath. I don't care about anything or anybody. Like, I don't feel emotions the way you do, blah, blah, blah. She and, made me right. I mean, that's the kind of thing that does that to somebody, you know? And, I would imagine... Uh, and and then we we see into the depths of her soul and we see that's not the truth. The truth is she does deeply care for people. And that's why she's so bent on protecting the other members of the Order of the Cauldron. Um But but like you said, the the one specific line, the owie, 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 that was just oof. Like I, I'm Books don't normally make me cry, and that didn't make me cry, but it, it like, I got that a little shook me. up. That shook me. Like, I was shaken yeah. by that. Yeah. Like, that was, that was rough to read. That was that really was rough. I was balancing, like, a 600 pound rack on a hoist when I heard that line at work. That was a little <laughs> concerning. Yeah. Kind of made me, kind of gave me a pause. But, um, again, they elicit that physical reaction, as I've always said. That's, that is some prime writing. That's just grade A stuff, but oh my mm -hmm. god, does it hurt. So, yeah. now that I've stuttered and rambled and fumbled my way through this episode, shall we get into the final draft? Yeah, let's do it. I'll start us what off. What are you drinking? I've, um, so I was drinking coffee, which I shouldn't have been, but, you know, it's good stuff. <laughs> However, I, had, I did drink a beer as well. I had this one prepared um, a little bit ahead of time. 
This is here. This one is oh god, I didn't actually take a look at the at the name of the brewery. This is an ale. It's actually a strong ale, but by strong it means 6.8%. So it's nothing quite like those meaty concoctions that Drew McCaffrey has brought on before. Um, it claims a robust, a robust malt profile and a sweetness that is balanced by liberal use of bittering hops. I didn't get too much bittering hops, honestly. At least not like I really expected. I was expecting like double IPA kind of territory. This is... <laughs> oh, I, this may be from Rogue. I believe this is from... Oh, boy. I can't tell. I should have looked this up beforehand. Anyway, this is a 6.8% ABV. This is dedicated to Madrigal. And this is a really stupid joke to make. It's very generic, but I'm doing it anyway because f*** that guy. This is called Dead Guy. Uh, oh, That's it. Oh, I've seen that label before. I think I've had that beer before. Oh, Newport, Oregon by Rogue Ales. There it is. Yeah. I just found it on the back because I was holding it there. In fact, I think I may have brought that on for an episode in the no. past no way all right i have the spreadsheet right here i'm gonna <gasps> look it up and see did i make a it's... dead did i get make a bad boys joke at that side and go dead guy i might have done that i'm trying to remember where it would have been oh my god drew you think you just blew my mind have we had the same beer now i think we have well of ascension part one i brought on that beer <laughs> oh no i had no idea that's amazing yeah well now we have found a brew that we can share together that's awesome i, I did not it. know that that is completely it. coincidental i guess it kind of makes sense because it's it's nice and open and valid it's a dead guy i mean there's a lot of dead guys in epic fantasy and sci-fi yep. <laughs> yes there are <laughs> god yeah I, I every time i say it i struggle i struggle not to put that bad boys vibe on it, that dead guy but that's it. That's what I've been drinking. It was all right. I mean, it wasn't particularly notable. I wouldn't say, oh, it was delicious. But I don't know beers very well. I'm, I'm more of a, as I've explained, a water or scotch guy. Sure. So, all right. What have you been sipping on? Yeah, so I've been sipping on a Russian Imperial Stout from oh. Adroit Theory Brewing Company. Uh, yeah. I've had Adroit Theory on before. Um, uh, this guy is let's see twelve percent ABV. Wow! And I've I've had this in the fridge for a while, just waiting. I was like, "There's got to be a Dresden book that does witches." <laughs> like there there has to be. Yeah. And we get into the beginning of this book, and I was like, "Yes, bingo!" Finally. So this book is or th- this beer is called Coven. Oh, okay. Right on. Because that's what the Order of the Cauldron is. The Order of the Cauldron is a coven, yeah. I love the Order of the Cauldron, by the way. I almost laughed when you said that again during the uh, your your recap. <laughs> the Order of the Cauldron. Come on! I love yeah, little, it. It's so bad, I love those. it. It's so bad that it's like it's wonderful. But, nice. Very yeah, yeah. So, I think that uh, brings us to the end of a, a pretty succinct episode. Looks like we're just over an hour. That's it. Uh, not too bad. Um, I'm not sure what episode this is going to be. It's probably going to be somewhere in the like 137, 138 range. I don't know. 139. Somewhere around there. We'll you figure know, it we out. We don't. Whoever's listening to this knows. Yeah. yeah. We don't know yet. But uh, next up, as I mentioned earlier, we will be taking a short break from the Dresden Files and we will be doing the first book of Garrett P.I. by Glenn Cook, titled Sweet Silver Blues. And uh, I highly recommend you check this book out if you're a Dresden Files fan. Uh, Check out Garrett P.I. in general. Uh, This series was a major inspiration to Jim Butcher, 
uh, for the Dresden Files. In fact, in the acknowledgments of uh, Stormfront, I believe, he has Glenn Cook specifically called out. And in the the kind of author's note that's in the, the back of a lot of his books where he talks about Codex Alera, um, he talks about Glenn Cook as one of those foundational uh, sci-fi fantasy authors that he discovered as a young man. So we're going to be going back to kind of compare and contrast the inspiration for Dresden while we while we meet Garrett in Sweet Silver Blues. Yeah. Uh, as always, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash loud or on Coffee, like Rob said. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.